I own an island off the coast of Costa Rica. I've leased it from the government and I've spent the last five years setting up a kind of biological preserve. Really spectacular, spared no expense. And there's no doubt our attractions will drive kids out of their minds. And not just kids, everyone. There's a particular pebble in my shoe represents my investors. Says that they insist on outside opinions. What kind of opinions? Well, you're kind not to put too fine a point on it. I mean, let's face it, in your particular field, you're the top minds. And if I could just persuade you to sign off on the park, you know, get your endorsement, maybe even pen a, a wee testimonial, I could get back on schedule. Uh, schedule. Why would they care what we think? What kind of park is this? It's right up your alley. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, Jurassic Park Retrospective Series. Boy, am I glad to see you. Join Garrett. Hey, girl, you miss me? Matt. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. And Adam. You're the new guy, right? Yeah. You ever wonder why there was a job opening? As they take a tour of one of cinema's most popular franchises. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Does Garrett still wish death upon cinematic children? Anybody hear that? Will Matt make more enemies than out-of-reach dino food? Nobody move a muscle. And where does Adam stand? on yet another film series started by the beard. We're going to have to adjust to new threats that we can't imagine. Find out the answers to all these questions and more on this podcast, 65 million years in the making. What an asshole. Courtesy of Percolated Media. And remember, if something chases you... Lost World, Jurassic Park, released May 23rd, 1997, budget on this was $73 million, box office $618.6 million, Damn. and this is directed for the last time in this series by the beard himself, Steven Spielberg. Ah, uh, Adam, 1997, what a year, huh? <laughs> yeah, you're not we had two. We had two big movies with boats. That made a shit ton of money. <laughs> and this was second to Titanic that year. I remember the release of this very well. I was really looking forward to it. Adam, what about you? I remember it. I remember the marketing, I think, more than almost anything. I don't remember my viewing of it, but in rewatching it for this, I'm like, oh, yes, I remember this, 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 and this. So I definitely saw it in theaters because it was 97. So, yeah, I hadn't left. Like, I left for the military shortly after this, like the fall. So... I definitely would have seen this in theaters that summer. So my story that I teased last week. And I remember a girl I went out with by the name of Heather, correct? I should do. Yeah, I did. Yeah. We had made plans to go see this the weekend it was out. And I was so excited. But the time we were able to go was the Sunday that this was released, which, you know, we went ahead and went. But we had to rush home. You know why we had to rush home? Hmm. (laughs) Think of a series we've done in the past. Because the series in May of 1997 was being aired that she was recording for me. And we had to rush home because the Shining TV miniseries was being shown that night. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, I was like, we didn't do an X-Files series. 
Wow. <laughs> <laughs> we, we rushed home. We watched the first part of that Shining TV miniseries. I never did, like I said in that when we did that series, I never did see the second part. But this was a double header. I saw this and I saw the first part of the Shining miniseries in the same night, and it was quite a night. Matthew Goudreau, you were four years old in 1997. Did your parents drag you as a four-year-old to the theaters to see this? No, but I dragged them to the arcade to play the rail shooter game that this was based on. And it was was a really cool setup because it was enclosed. You had to physically go inside it. Some models. I don't know if all of them were like this. And it was all dark and pretty immersive. Like they, They modeled it after the Jeep. So you just shoot dinosaurs. Uh, it was hard. Like, you had to have really good reflexes in order to not go through quarters like T-Rexes go through dumbass scientists in this movie. That was my memory of this. I did not see one of these in the theater until the third one came out. Not that this one has ever been re-released, so I haven't gotten the opportunity. And I've only seen this movie once prior to doing this recording today. And how many times had you revisited the first one? A lot. I, c- I couldn't give you an estimate, but c- considerably more than one, I will say that. Okay. Wow. And Adam, you said you had only watched it one time, correct? Yeah, I couldn't even remember if I had, but it was definitely just the one time. I've seen bits and pieces, you know, throughout, but I, this is, I'm pretty sure this is only the second time I've sat and watched this, and I own the quote-unquote ultimate trilogy, you know, box set. And yeah, just like Matt, you know, seen the first one a bunch, no pun intended, but second one, I can only say this is my second time seeing it start to finish. I got to be honest, I I don't I haven't seen it many more times than you guys. I've probably seen it three, maybe four times. I watched it a couple times when it was out. I watched it for that retrospective that I did five, six years ago. And then I... I haven't really revisited it either, so it, it's not one I go back to. And Steven Spielberg, it was interesting because 1993 was such a huge year for him because he had the first Jurassic Park, he had Schindler's List, ended up winning the Best Picture Oscar for Schindler's List and Best Director. That was his night. Long overdue, according to many people. And so he took some time off. And the first movie he decided to do when he returned was this. He had Joe Johnston come up to him and say, hey, man, if you just want to step in a producer's role, I'll be more than happy to do this movie. And Spielberg was like, you know what? I had such a good time making that first movie. I want to go ahead and do it. And so him and David Kep, David Kep once again wrote a script for this. But I have a theory as to why this movie came to fruition and why Spielberg himself was so adamant about doing it. Adam, you remember DreamWorks was about ready to be launched. Absolutely. A year or two after this. And... Steven Spielberg has stakes in that studio. I think this was a way of backing that studio financially so that he could go ahead and step in the role of a studio head. Yeah, as much as he's the benevolent grandfather, you know, that everybody knows in Hollywood, he's kind of like Hammond. Of he's, he's two-fisted capitalist also when it comes down to it. You know, look at his deals at Universal theme parks and things of that sort. He's... He could be very shrewd, um, and I mean that complimentary, as a business person. So what it was taking to get to get that going and the contracts and relationships that he had, I would not be surprised that that was definitely a part of the reasoning behind it. It was his push after the first one, I believe, that he kind of went to Crichton and said, you write me a book for the sequel because we're going to make a tyrannosaurus amount of money off of this. 
he was the one who went to him. And Crichton, you know, he was good after that first book. The first book was a techno thriller. And Crichton was not big on making another book. But Spielberg and the studio. And Matt, you made a brilliant comparison last week. This is Thomas Harris all over again, isn't it? Right down to the fact that he just openly didn't want to make it. And the in this case, the director was the one who was insisting, not necessarily the producer, although Spielberg, you could classify as both. From what I understand, Crichton did not want to write this whatsoever and just did it for the money. And that's kind of something that I think is disingenuous on Spielberg's part because he forced, basically strong-armed him into doing this book only to basically not adapt it whatsoever outside of the name and some principal characters. There's a couple big scenes that he puts in here. The key word is a couple. Yeah, yeah. This is as much of an adaptation as some of the Bond films were of just taking the title Mm -hmm. in a couple scenes. It's it's of that mold. I'm not saying that's a bad thing because from my understanding, I didn't have the chance to read it. The book's not especially great, but I don't think it's as what the fuck am I reading as, say, the novel Hannibal. I remember reading it way back when. It's ambitious, but, you know, I mean, he had to do some major backpedaling because the character of Malcolm, as you recall, was killed in that first book. Somehow Ian Malcolm returned. He had to do some real outlining here and to say basically that he had been found right before the place was nuked and they patched him back up together. and It's really bizarre, but I mean, that's the character that was popular. And to me, in, in recalling it, I think Crichton himself was writing a sequel to the movie, not a sequel to his book. I think he put stuff in there to include in this movie and not necessarily from his own mind, from his own feelings of where the characters would go. And I think that was probably due to the pushing of Spielberg. And if you talk to Crichton, you know, I mean, he's no longer with us, but if you had spoken to him in the time since this movie had come out, he had said that, yeah, they were already doing set pieces before I was finished with the book anyway. So that might do a lot of explaining, Matt, as to why this movie says so different from that book. They were already setting up what they're going to do anyway. And that retcon specifically is also tied into the fact that Jeff Goldblum also had Independence Day Mm -hmm. on his blockbuster resume. So making him essentially the only returning character outside of a couple cameos did seem like a a box office decision. I wonder if that was part of Spielberg's pitch. Was that bring this character back? Cause we want, we want to use him again. Well, there are a lot of things to talk about when it comes to casting and everything else, but we're going to get into that as we get into the movie, because they're more prudent to talk about when we get to the scenes and the cast of characters we have here. All right. So we start off on the Island of Isla Sorna or site B. So I don't have to keep saying that over and over with a snooty family taking a stop from their ocean cruise to enjoy a few cocktails. Now this little girl, this is Camila Bell. She's roaming around the beach. Now Camila Bell, she had a little bit of a career in the 2000s. She was in that when a stranger calls remake, pretty bad movie, but she was in another terrible movie with the girl from uh, 24. Like here she is as a little girl. She's wandering off and checking out some compies. And I have to say, I like this beginning a lot. I like how the girl at first expresses exuberance and then dread and how at first her screams are lost until the mom comes up. And I'm thinking, wow, could he have done it? Could Steven Spielberg, that crazy son of a bitch, to quote Ian Malcolm from the first one, kill a child in the opening moments of a sequel in this blockbuster? 
we're going to find out later that he didn't. Matt, this is taken directly from that first book, correct? This is the inciting incident of the whole plot of the first movie, or one of the two. I think it's fine, but one of the things that this movie does more so than the first one is it really plays to the B-movie level of character screenwriting that the novel does. Because this is the most foppish British couple like elitists mm-hmm. that you could possibly cast, and everyone in this movie is straight straightforwardly written to a point where they have one defining attribute, and that's basically it. And I will say this movie's got no teeth because Spielberg did not off this girl. There's a throwaway line with like, oh yeah, she's okay. Uh, and the way that mother reacts is not the way someone reacts. Like, if your child was being attacked by a dog, let's say, I don't think it would be that over the top, because the way she sells it is like, oh, they found, like, the, the tethered remains of her body. <laughs> it goes further than that, because he, uh, John Hammond, a couple scenes later, I mean, it, he just flat out says, oh, she's fine, she's fine. Like, they made a point to tell us that this little girl is just A-okay. Yeah, to Matt's point, it's amazing how caricaturist this this family is. You know, as much as we're told that they have a yacht off the coast of Canada for conceit. I like the idea for this opening. I think it brings the horror, you know, element part that is present in the first one that is non-existent throughout the rest of this one. But, yeah, it's I remember this kid being killed. So, you know, in a few minutes when we learn she's not, I got to admit, I was kind of disappointed because, yeah, that mother doing the freaking Ghostbuster librarian scream in the worst jump cut in history is, I mean, that's a mother watching a kid be killed. So it it doesn't really fit. And I think that was a, a line dropped later, whether it was a studio insistent or Spielberg leaving his balls in the divorce settlement. It's kind of crazy that they would just not let that kid be killed. This was my exact argument when I did this series, and I took a hell of a beating for it. But this is the exact thing: is Spielberg's a different filmmaker at this time. He has won Oscars at this point. He this this same year he's going to be doing a t- whole movie about slavery for Christ's sake. I think there's some parallels of that in this movie, which we'll get to. But not even here. After Schindler's List and in the same year as Amistad, will Spielberg go back to one of the things that made him such a good filmmaker, the element of surprise. He could have killed this girl, and he didn't. But he does do one of the best cuts I've ever seen as this woman is screaming, and the very next shot is of Jeff Goldblum yawning. (laughs) As if Goldblum saying, you know what? I don't want to be here. Nobody wants to be here. We're here for the money. Goldblum is sleepwalking through this part. Here, he is the centerpiece of the story, always whining about nonsensical things. And the very first shot we see of him is of him looking bored at the fact that Spielberg once again didn't pull the trigger and kill that kid. Arg! right away I'm angry. He also feels like an entirely different character because he's giving such a mellowed performance compared to the first one. Mm-hmm. All those ex- eccentricities are basically gone once he gets to that island. And I, I think part of that is just the character is beaten down by what's happened by being called like this crazy conspiracy theorist. Once they get to that island, he, he's just there to make half-assed one-liners, but he doesn't fully commit to them, so they're not necessarily funny outside of one. Uh, this joke cut is amazing, but it's a great representation of this movie in that it is inconsistent in tone from scene to scene. The first one, I think, has that to a degree, but this one, I don't know what they were going for. There's, there's no real horror there is suspense, but then there's parts where it's out of a, it might as well be out of a Nancy Drew movie where she's 
get to that fucking scene later because I have words. I don't know what they were going for with this movie. And much like Goldblum, I think Spielberg was asleep at the wheel. I'm going to say I think this is more leaning on the horror part. I think he kind of embraces the slasher portions of this movie. And we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it. But I, I do think that – I don't think Spielberg was sleepwalking through this. I do think he, he did his Francis Ford Coppola thing where he did take this for the money. But I am going to say I, I think there are portions – the better part of his filmmaking on display here. It's – uh, I'm going to be the one who just can't stand this jump cut, smash cut, however you – like – and I'm, it's going to be my second reference. Like, it's the Ghostbusters intro where somebody screams and then it kicks into a comedic moment. You might as well just start that theme song. It's just, I, I, I fucking hate this. Like, cut. I get it. I understand it. But oof. To me, this is Goldblum every time he has to be the star of a film. Other than maybe The Fly where he keeps, you know, that, that type of just weird type of persona character that he brings. But all the movies that I think of where those idiosyncrasies, those little Jeff Goldblum moments, is when he's playing second, third, or fourth fiddle, and he can do it. When he's got to carry the film like he does in this one, I think he's always really, really muted because I don't think he knows how to be a star of a film, and he is really, really muted. I think they could have explained it. If maybe in his apartment home, whatever it is, there's all these articles, maybe a news story about how, you know, disgraced, you know, mathematician Ian Malcolm. And you could have justified it just as quickly and easily as you justified that kid freaking somehow being alive. But yeah, it's it really doesn't feel like the same character at all. So Malcolm gets on the subway in all black and sits down, only to be recognized by a passenger on the train who says he believed him and then makes dinosaur noises as the other passengers take a glance as well. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this guy's just crushing on Ian Malcolm is what it feels like. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) We see that Malcolm has been summoned by Hammond, and as he walks in, he's greeted by the two kids from last time who are still hanging out at their grandpa's house just long enough to be in a cameo. As Malcolm, who signed a non-disclosure agreement, is then spouting about how his reputation has been hurt and that the incident from the last film has caused control of the island to be given to InGen. Boys, what do you feel about this just kind of injected at the last minute set of cameos with these two kids? You know, I, I believe if you if you listen to either of them talk in the later years, they have said that we there were plans for us to be in this entire picture, but they decided to disregard that. Do we get enough of them here? Would you guys like to have had another adventure with these two? I would have preferred them considerably more to the person who tags along in this movie. So if you're asking me what causality equation I would prefer, it's this one. But I also, these movies that we're going to talk about, this one in particular, and basically all of them going forward, the fact that there's kids in every single one feels like such a studio note because they're appealing to dinosaurs and childlike wonder when I don't always feel like the movie justifies having a kid's I have problems with this setup because I don't buy that none of the other people would have would have said something. And it feels like retroactive writing because there is never mentioning of a non-disclosure agreement in the first movie. Definitely retroactive for sure. Yeah, it's it's funny. I kind of want the kids to look and go, "What the fuck, Grandpa? We're going back." <laughs> um, <laughs> it. I had forgotten that the kids were actually here. I was trying to look and notice if they were the same actors or not. It's a weird insertion, being that they play zero role whatsoever. You know, it's almost just like a, hey, remember, these kids were there in the last one, don't forget, yada, yada, and we're moving on. So it, it's a weird inclusion, being that it just doesn't play a role. I feel like there's no real compliments being thrown around. I want to throw one out right now. I'm glad that these, car- these kids are here and then gone, because I, I have a feeling that 
this could have turned into the beginning stages of a, of a legacy sequel. This mm-hmm. isn't something that is relying on the nostalgia from that first film. We're going to get an ooh and ah moment here in a little bit. But after that, he's moving the story forward. I enjoy the fact that we're not lingering on the same characters as before, except for one. And we're just moving forward. That That is something I never really thought about before. But then seeing all these goddamn legacy sequels, and we just talked about one a few weeks ago with Indiana Jones, just fail poorly at what they do. The fact that this is actually doing something that doesn't involve what we've seen in the past. I can respect that. If this movie was made a couple years later, it would have been in real time. It would have been 10 years older, and the younger boy at least would have been tagging along. So InGen is the company that actually created the dinosaurs from last time. They're going to play a big part in this. Right away, you're introducing new villains, human villains in this movie, and we haven't even gotten to the Hammond part of it all. But right away, this is not starting off very well for me. This whole scene with Hammond and his nephew. Attenborough, in a cameo from bed, pretty much, (laughs) mentions Site B, which is the factory floor. So they take the dinosaurs off Site B after they've been created to the park. And then when the park didn't work out, they took them back? Okay, so he's what he's saying is, I listened to you from last time, Ian. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to put them in their natural habitat. That'll work better. This is literally like the ending of, of Contact, where, you know, what, why build one when you can build two? God, that reference was 65 million years in the making. <laughs> Hammond is happy with the fact that they're out of their cages and out in the habitat, and that he has organized another team to observe and document how the animals are living. And all this has Malcolm saying that Hammond's not making the same mistakes, he's just making all new ones. Also, I like the one where, you know, calls him out on it. You've gone from businessman to philanthropist in just four years. I feel like Spielberg really has a an affinity for Hammond because we mentioned last the last podcast that in that book, Hammond is really the villain of the story. Here, Spielberg is trying every way possible to make him not to be the villain and say, th- saying that he is trying to do the right thing. He's him. This is this filmmaker who wanted to bring, you know, such spectacle and everything else who ended up being nothing but another studio director. And Mm. occasionally he would bring, you know, these amazing dinosaurs to life. And sometimes you may cook. It's sometimes you're just nothing but that capitalist. And, yeah, I think there's a lot of Spielberg's inner demons inside of Hammond. We then hear that one of the people on the island is his girlfriend, a paleontologist named Sarah, who was there to take photos and make sure the island is functioning properly. So this is how Hammond is getting Malcolm to go to the island. His chick is there. I hate this part of screenwriting when it's, there's this person and a name, there's this person and a name, there's this person and a name, there's this person, no name. There is no doubt what that no-name person is going to be and how they're going to affect the rest of the movie. It Oh, God, that is just the laziest screenwriting trope. This movie has um the has a problem with the pronoun game syndrome. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It's madness, pal. Malcolm says that Hammond has officially changed it from a research expedition to a rescue mission. He says it's not a wild goose chase because where they're going, the geese chase you. Wow! Put an asterisk every time that a line is written just to be in a trailer. <laughs> I feel like this whole movie was designed for a trailer. <laughs> literally, because they throw literally. it out. <laughs> Within me, Malcolm's daughter, Kelly. Oh, oh Kelly. I, I hate this character so much. <laughs> How did I know that was coming? She's so upset that she was cut from the gymnastics team. Oh, I'm so. sure this won't come back later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Check off gymnastics. And, of course, she also doesn't have a Sega, so that also makes her a little upset. 
I, I, this kid is so damn annoying. As far as I'm concerned, she's one of the Goonies. Oh, wow. And it, it's amazing that this is, you know what? It gets called out later that nobody is going to be willing to talk about the diversity casting of giving Jeff Goldblum a black daughter, which very progressive, you know, for this time, but it's never mentioned until, you know, there's a line dropped later on. But when you don't address it for 30 minutes, you got a whole audience kind of tilting their head sideways like a, you know, like a dog hearing a whistle a little bit. But everything about her is annoying. The lines that they give her, the way that she actually does them, it just, I mean, obviously you're going to have a kid in a dinosaur movie, but this one is, is pretty damn bad, even by Spielberg standards. Here's the thing, and here's why I say Spielberg was a different filmmaker at this time. He had adopted two black kids about this time. Mm -hmm. And Malcolm did say last film, and we kind of glossed over the line, but he did say that he did have three kids. So this is not something that wasn't set up from before. But the decision to make her into this character, make those kids into this one character, is... I don't know. It's it's definitely questionable. Now, I'm not as harsh on her as you guys are. There's something she does later that is still laughed at to this day. But I'm not as harsh on her as I was on, say, Teddy from Indiana Jones. It's just, she's just, she's just kind of here to fill that kid quota. Teddy oh, wishes she could be Teddy. Yeah, Teddy is far more useful to the plot than this character is. Oh, for and, God's sake. And she goes from being all headstrong and brave to utter cowardice as soon as she sees a dinosaur. Like, say what you want about the kids in the previous movie, for them being younger... They show much more bravery than this character does and nowhere near as much boisterous nonsense early on. But by the way, that's the way a kid would be. A kid would not want to go up and fight, face a fucking dinosaur. A kid would be scared of these fucking things. I, I think that's more genuine than these, the, the kids from last time who approached them head on. They only approach them head on because they don't have a choice. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this is her decision to go. So as far as I'm concerned, and she knows there's dinosaurs on this island. She does, but she also but knows she that her not. dad has been an ab- she also knows that her dad has been an absentee father, and that's another thing that Spielberg explores in all oh, of his fucking uh, movies. And so it. she wants to go to see what her dad does. He's got to stop digging up that fossil of a trope. And, and speaking of which, where are his other kids that he mentioned in the first yep. movie? Well, that's just it, and that's what I'm saying. That yeah, he had mentioned he had three. We're only seeing this one. I think they decided to instead of bringing all three, write this as as one. How about you don't bring any of them and save me <laughs> save me some uh, save my eardrums? But just because you have dinosaurs, you don't have to put kids in these movies. Malcolm tells her not to listen to him as he heads away, but of course she sneaks on with the expedition. We're meeting Eddie Carr and Nick Van Owen now. Let's talk about Richard Schiff first. He was audition. He had auditioned for a TV show that Spielberg was producing called High Incident. But Spielberg wanted to use him in The Lost World. I think Richard Schiff is great in this. I think he steals every scene he's in. Richard Schiff is great, period. He's one of the best characters on the West Wing. Which, by the way, the little girl who plays Kelly was also in an episode of West Wing. Yeah, an episode versus series regular. Big difference. <laughs> he's also, for the record, he's also the only likable character in this movie. <laughs> because he, he barbs with Malcolm, but he's not an asshole like everyone else is. Like, this feels more like a Michael Crichton novel because there's nobody to like. <laughs> that's definitely true of all of michael Crichton's stuff for sure yeah i like him i think he's a good presence i think you know when the the little bit that he's got he's it's a good kind of like relief of he's a good relief between bad acting bad writing and bad action and he always kind of just like hey calm down i'm gonna give you a good you know 30 seconds here so i think he's a nice presence in the film we then have nick van owen aka vince vaughn oh and that name's gonna come back later now, interesting note about this casting. 
Spielberg was propositioned about a small independent movie <laughs> called Swingers that was being released, and they wanted to use the Jaws theme. So Spielberg saw the movie and liked Vaughn in it so much that he put him in the Lost World. He's here as a photographer slash ladies' man. He <laughs> really plays against type here, and I think he was kind of a bit of a miscast. Well, 90s Vince Vaughn and miscast go hand-in-hand, hand, like Spielberg and John Williams. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's, that's par for the course. He wants to be Harrison Ford so bad in this movie. Because they write him to try to be the act, the big badass at the end. When really all he does is just escalate the situation and fuck over the expedition. I think he's okay. I can't remember if I saw this before. So I definitely saw this before Swingers because Swingers was VHS. But I kind of like 90s Vaughn more than I like today's Vince Vaughn. You know, between something like this, um, The Cell... I think he's actually got some things in this time frame that are decent. I don't mind him, mainly because he doesn't stand out, you know, all that much. But I could have used about 30% less. But he's he's fine. I feel like him and Richard Schiff should have switched roles. Mm. Mm-hmm. We're hearing that the island is called the Five Deaths as we see them trek across <laughs> some feet. For the record, it's, it's boredom, bad acting, dumb characters, and one stowaway sidekick, and survival instincts going out the window. If we're going to have this map that shows all these islands, can one of them just please be La Isla Bonita? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to wait one more week for that joke, but I just couldn't. I'm sorry. <laughs> you couldn't. Uh, we're seeing them trek across some fields and into a jungle until Malcolm finds Sarah's bag with a hole in it. So we're thinking that she's in trouble. Meanwhile, we see some stegosauruses walk across the screen as Malcolm goes, ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. Later, there's running and screaming. And so when I mentioned earlier that there was less of the spectacle, because here's the thing about this movie as opposed to last week's movie. In last week's movie, we were waiting for that reveal of the dinosaurs. We were waiting to see the spectacle of the dinosaurs in front of us. Here, Spielberg realizes that they don't have that tool anymore. We know what they're going to look like. So he uses this one time for characters to go, ooh, and Uh, And then we're going to get to the action of the film. But I think it was wise to not really dwell on this. And, of course, you know, they had to have stegosauruses because that was one of the big notes that they had was, where are the stegosauruses? They would get letters and things from people who really wanted to see the stegosaurus dinosaurs. So here they are. They're here on screen for a little bit of time. I I think it's fine. I think the effects still hold up pretty well. Yeah, I like how he he uses dinosaurs that were not incorporated in the first one. So it does offer something new that they're also in a natural habitat and aren't necessarily going to be confrontational because they're plant eaters. I appreciate that this movie does not waste time with getting to the dinosaurs, which I feel like nowadays they would have, where you'd have like 45 minutes of setup before they actually get to the island. You know, this one and the first one have that in common. Stegosaurus, my favorite dinosaur, freaking making an appearance, and I'm underwhelmed. It just doesn't have the buildup, doesn't have the ooh and ah, and it's the first out of like two dozen instances where nobody can hear multi-ton herd until they're, like, right upon them, freaking shoulder to shoulder. I'm going to disagree. I think the effects actually look pretty damn bad. I think the mat lines between between what's CG and what's not have gotten worse from film to film, which is kind of unbelievable in four years. Um, I don't believe the weight heft of these creatures, and it's really disappointing. Even when they're walking through the freaking woods, jungle, whatever this is, since it goes from Costa Rica to Northern California, depending on how they freaking filmed it, Ewok Village, to me it's kind of crazy that even those, they literally use like different plates and mats, even with them just walking through the woods. And I think it looks bad. I really do. Huh. I, I will I will say this. I don't think the effects have advanced that much in the four years since that first film, but I do think it's a little bit better. They, this film 
did not take the leap from one film to the next that technology did from 93 to 97. Like, Starship Troopers looks better than this film. Let's not forget, too, that at this point, in the, in 1993, they weren't really doing too many computerized effects around that time. By 97, we had Men in Black. They were probably working on the Star Wars updates that we talked about. Uh, there were a whole bunch of things they were already working on in 97 that they weren't working on in 93. So maybe they got the B team here. I don't know. But I don't think they are as bad as you are making them out to be. Yeah. Well, if that's the case, Men in Black definitely got the A team. Because while some of those effects look dated by today, at the time, some of those alien designs were really cutting edge. And all the, the practical makeup that Rick Baker did, especially on Vincent D'Onofrio, looks great. So we're seeing Julianne Moore. She's playing Sarah. She's taking gonna, pictures. and unhateable. <laughs> she's taking pictures and having a blast with Nick the photographer until she runs into Malcolm, who's not happy. Okay, Adam, so here's your other dream crush. <laughs> I was going to say, this, this week on Women Adam Crush On on Percolated Media. <laughs> Here she is, Julianne Moore. She's smiling more than Karen Allen in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. How do you like her here, Adam? She's an interesting addition. Tell you what, at least this time she wasn't cut out of the entire movie like she was a couple years ago with freaking, uh, was it, The Fugitive, where she mm-hmm. had a giant B-plot that gets cut out for five minutes. It's weird because I like her, and she stands out like a sore thumb of having no reason to be here whatsoever. Who her character, especially watching it this time, who her character was supposed to be and all of her knowledge and real-world expertise kind of goes out the window after a little bit. Her smile would put Julia Roberts to shame because it never leaves her <laughs> face. But I'm struck how much her outfit is every freaking default outfit for every female in a jungle movie ever since this one has ever come out. Look at Jumanji freaking update. But I think she's one of the few enjoyable characters <laughs> throughout this entire film. So as much as she may be miscast and miswritten, I at least like seeing Julianne more. Me and Jen watched The Big Lebowski a few weeks ago, and I oh. and I had forgotten that that movie had actually come out after this one. Like she was already in this before she had done that movie. This was the same year as Boogie Nights. I was say, That's true too. Boogie Nights, and it's amazing because in Boogie Nights she's supposed to be an aged star, and she's the same that she is in here. I think she's smiling so so much because she had a concussion throughout the entire production. <laughs> <laughs> For being one of our great actresses, and I truly believe that. Her blockbuster track record is not good. Uh, and again, her and Vince Vaughn must have really hooked up because she got roped into Psycho too. I, I think she's she's an interesting character because uh, they didn't just write her as LE 2.0, which I appreciate and that's certainly what they could have done. But there comes a point where I'm like, alright, she doesn't serve much of a purpose outside of just being on Jeff Goldblum's hip. She's got that kind of track record where she does all these small movies. And it reminds me a lot of, ironically, it reminds me of Laura Linney. Because Laura Linney is also one of those fine actresses who does these blockbuster films, a.k.a. Congo. And she is she has no qualms about doing them and saying, oh, yeah, you know, I, I always think I could bring something different to each character that I do. Julianne Moore has come out and said since this movie has come out that she did this movie, A, to pay for a divorce, and B, to work with Steven Spielberg. She didn't really see any depth to this character. She just kind of did it. She's another one. She's is here for the money she's here to go through the motions and i do i do think it shows here i can't falter for that either every actor who does that gets a pass every actress that does that gets shit on for it i am not faltering her whatsoever what i'm saying is she's adding on to what's already pretty much on display is that everybody's here for the money 
Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Absolutely. And I'm not saying you are, but I'm saying that she it, – it, it's just a common thing that actor does that over and over. You know, Michael Caine famously talks about Jaws 3 just – I showed up to buy me a house. You know, Jaws four. I have Jaws not. 4. I have not seen Jaws of Revenge, but I have seen the house you bought me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she gets close to a baby stegosaurus as she reaches out to pet it. Which is something now, speaking of, that, as a paleontologist, you would know. You don't touch wildlife. No. Just this week, there was a woman who touched a bison up in Yellowstone who got gored. You know mm-hmm. what happens to that bison? They get excommunicated from the herd because they got touched by a human. Now, speaking of photography, this is when the film's photographer, Janusz Kaminski, is really on display. Spielberg had wanted to work with Dean Cundey again, but Cundey was busy, so he went with this Schindler's List guy who did marvelous work on Schindler's List. I don't know. I think around this time, his his work was kind of shoddy. He would benefit once digital photography would come into play. Here, I have to say, I'm not a big fan of his work. I don't think it's the movie's as lush as it could be. I'm not impressed by it. I don't think it's bad. I'm just not impressed. Nothing about this movie. And at this point, we're, what, about 30 minutes in? If it did not have Steven Spielberg's name at the beginning, nothing in this would make me think that it's a Spielberg film. Not in the way that it's shot. Well, maybe because it's got shitty kid characters. But other than that, nothing to me makes this feel like that. Yeah, I get the sense this is one of those movies that Second Unit did a lot of the actual photography of. And as far as the cinematography goes, one of the issues I have is because so many of the big set pieces take place at night, the dinosaurs are kind of hard to see at certain points because of the lighting and because most of them are entirely CG. Here it's fine because it's during the daylight, but even this this, la- this lush jungle, it's not as green as it should be. Photography in itself, to describe in a word, I call it muted. So Sarah, of course, she ends up pissing the other dinosaurs off as they're protecting its baby, and she hides under a log, uh, get away from them. And this is when the big change in music is also on display, that of bongos in John Williams' repertoire. And I have to say, this is a bottom-tier Williams score. I I wasn't a fan of last week's score, but I could understand the wonder he was evoking with it. What the fuck is he doing here? This is terrible. I hate his music in this movie. I think he's coasting as much as Spielberg was. I had to look it up because I was, you know, I didn't pay, I didn't look at any credits or anything beforehand. But yeah, at this point, I wanted to look and I'm like, man, who is aping John Williams and doing it so poorly for this film? Well, it's Williams himself. Like, I didn't think he actually came back because that's how different and really how it's not, it's not bottom basement. It's, it's poor. Man, yeah, coasting would be, would be generous. Take everything you did in the first one, give it to somebody else and let him rework it. But oof, this is, you know what, when he does, John Williams at the Hollywood Bowl every year. I don't think anything's coming out from Lost World. Does he do that every year? Every single year. Though now he only does, I think, the last 40 minutes of it. Somebody else does the opening hour and a half. Mm. He deserves a break. The man's in his 90s, for God's sake. <laughs> not kidding. Yes. <laughs> Malcolm finds his daughter Kelly cooking dinner in the trailer. And Malcolm is understandably upset and says that he's going to take her away from there. And Sarah says that she's the best kind of girlfriend that there is, one who travels a lot and gives him his independence, and that she has made a career out of waiting for him. Oof. Yeah, I wonder why he's been divorced multiple times. (laughs) (laughs) She needed to give him that independence day. Oh. But I think, see, some of the words like this, to me, is Spielberg still working some shit out, too. (laughs) It feels that way. So as Malcolm and Sarah fight, Ian sees some in-gen choppers approach. And this is when we see Pete Postlewaite's character of Tembo, who's probably my favorite character in this movie. 
it's weird because he's not a good character, but yeah, I mean, Pete Postlewaite is is fun. He of uh, the amazing performance the year before in Romeo and Juliet. Oh my! <laughs> wow! Oh god! Wow! There's a pull. Yeah, you're welcome. But it, yeah, for such, it's weird because this is when, for the first time in these two movies we kind of get an antagonist. You know, we talked about how in the first one there really there really isn't. I mean, Nedry's kind of the closest that we get. But in this one, we get a villain brought in with engine. But Evan Postlewaite here, like, he's villainous in a way, you know, but not the exact same way. And it's weird because he's written almost identical to, I can't even remember, but the guy, the clever girl guy from the first film. Oh, yeah, he's Muldoon. Yeah, he's Muldoon, but just kind of ramped up a little bit. You know, if, if Hammond pulled him instead of engine, it's the same character. Yeah, he's evil, but he's not evil enough. And I don't think he's the villain. I reserve that for Hammond's nephew, who is, yeah, mm. as cartoony a villain, he might as well be, like, the evil he's, version. He's Daddy Warbucks if he was evil. Yeah, he's uh, Snidely Whiplash. I don't even think he's that interesting. I was going to say, Pete Postlewaite, the year before, I saw him in James with the Giant Peach. <laughs> You're the one. Yeah, I was the, I was the one person, and that movie almost traumatized me with some of the shit that's in that movie. <laughs> He's fine, but I'm also like, why? Why did he hire dinosaur experts who? He hired experts who don't know the names of the dinosaurs. <laughs> and even him, for somebody looking forward to this and being such a big game, it, that he wouldn't know who they are and what they are just doesn't make any sense. He should be the one smart person on that crew. Oh, yeah. none of these people belong to Mensa, based on how the movie goes. <laughs> uh, the, these are the dumbest expedition experts I have seen since Alien Covenant. <laughs> like, it's that le- like, there comes a point in this movie where there, there's something that happens where <laughs> I said, clearly you got your degree out of a cereal box. So as they drive, they go right in the middle of some herds, and they're rounding up some dinosaurs. And this is when I realized that Spielberg is making a dinosaur slavery parable, much like he did with humans in that same year's Almastad. We're supposed to feel bad for these dinosaurs because we have close-ups of them suffering as they're being shot. Sarah McLaughlin might as well do the score. For <laughs> <laughs> with the amount of empathy they want you to feel for the... You know, I get what he's doing, but, I mean, Spielberg, let's be honest, he's not a subtle filmmaker. <laughs> No. Um, and this is as this is as blatant as the horns for the actual Jurassic Park theme. And it's one of the things that I think that just does not work at all. Because as the first movie establishes, they're wild animals. They're kind of the Frankenstein monster where it's like they don't know where they are. They don't they don't have purpose because they're not supposed to like clerks. I'm not supposed to be here today. <laughs> but the movie plays it like, no, this is all the, the villains are painted with such a broad brush. And I get. He tries to make the heroic characters appealing to the dinosaurs, but in doing so, they're just as evil as the quote-unquote villains, because they're, they're also responsible for a lot of people getting killed in this movie. So the group sees what InGen's doing, and they're none too pleased, as InGen recognizes a T-Rex track. They find some compies, same creatures from the beginning, as Peter Starmore, he's here, he fucks with one. <laughs> Spielberg <laughs> must have liked Fargo, because he gets a pretty big role. He comes back for... Uh... For Minority Report, a decade later. Yeah, he would. Yes, uh, and he was also five in, years later. He was also in Big Lebowski. And, and he was in Seinfeld. He has one of the best guest starring roles in Seinfeld. Yeah, he does. I've never seen a full episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> well, for context, he should have brought a giant frogger machine with him. 
we're seeing how organized InGen is, and they're gathering all the creatures up for a trip to America. And Nick says that Hammond did send a backup plan as he loads up his gun and says, Me! <laughs> One of the worst lines God, of 1997 that, is this line that here. That with a thud that even <laughs> an elephant would not be able to have heard the thud that that line landed with. Vince Vaughn, you are no Bruce Willis, sir. <laughs> well, at this point, I don't even think Bruce Willis was Bruce Willis. The group goes and releases a few of the creatures as we're hearing the plan to build a new park in San Diego. And then a Triceratops attacks. And then Nick finds a baby T-Rex tied up and brings him over to Sarah, who just says that Ian isn't going to like this very much. I, I like this Triceratops attack. I just wish it went on a little longer. Like It, was it just kind of comes and goes here. Yeah, this breakout, it looks good. It's a good piece of action. It, it's amazing how... God, this film wants to be aliens so bad. It's a good, you know, change of pace. I thought it was going to thin out, like, three-quarters of these in-gen people. Eh, not really. But this scene looks really good, and, yeah, it's it's a welcome departure from what we've gotten up to here. Adam's right about the aliens comparison to the point that they steal a scene later on. Yep. Uh, like, James Cameron could have sued for plagiarism while he was loading all of his Oscars that he won for Titanic in the back of his truck. At this point, he was tormenting Kate Winslet, so he could really care less. We're seeing a lift get introduced, and I wonder if this comes back into play as Ian tries contacting the boat that's going to be picking up the animals. Nick brings the baby in, and Sarah is intent on helping heal this baby. And I guess the suspense is when the T-Rex comes to find it, as Kelly says that she wants to go someplace high to be safe. They get on the lift, as Nick calls Sarah Dr. Quinn, and we hear the T-Rex yell. This is where people stop acting logically, except mm. Ian Malcolm. He's the only one who's like, do you not realize how stupid this is? She's, <laughs> yeah. a, she's a behavior of paleontologist. Think about what would happen if you did this with a bear cub. You don't think the mom is going to come with guns a-blazing? At least do this in the camp where you have backup or scientific equipment. Like, I get engines there, but th this is the problem with the movie where everyone is either really dumb or they try way too hard to make artificial tension where the these two teams are on opposites. Because there comes a point where it's like, I guess we'll work together because we got nothing better to do. It's got crystal skull syndrome. Yeah, I mean, they give her, you know, an advanced degree, but she has nothing to do but be here and act like a, act like a single mother throughout the rest of this film. Was Dee Wallace unavailable? <laughs> Malcolm decides to leave the lift, giving his word that he's coming back, which doesn't mean shit to Kelly, as she says that he never keeps his word. And that's also a shitty callback to the first movie with Grant. Mm -hmm. But this is also, this is, because it's funny, there's like four instances, like, it must have been his dad that left, because this one happens here, there's a line at the end of this film that's like, dude, this is written from your fucking childhood. But mm -hmm. to me, this is like, Spielberg's going to get in his shot as a dad, at a dad. We're seeing trees wrestle and birds fly away as Malcolm makes his way back to the trailer and exclaims, Mommy's very angry. And we get a view from inside the trailer as the T-Rex gives off a yell. Now, they have placed this scene right at the center of the film. In fact, I would think they wanted it lockstep with the first movie. Because they're feeling, and this is the scene from the book they included in this movie. They're thinking that this is just as effective as the T-Rex having the kids trapped from the first film. And there are some pretty good shots in this scene. I'm not going to completely downgrade this scene, but we'll, t we'll talk about how it escalates. And I don't know about you, but I get pretty sick of seeing this trailer in the rain at night because <laughs> it goes on for a while. I think this scene goes on even longer than the big T-Rex breakout in the first one. But this is the worst example, though, of if you didn't know this was Spielberg, you'd think it was 
It's like composers who know the notes but not the music, where it feels like a cheap imitation of the first movie up until a point when it, as you said, escalates. But I would also compare this movie to Temple of Doom in a lot of ways, where it's a movie about wordless action and the set pieces where, yeah, they're technically shot, but they're also unnecessarily cruel. Like, the way someone gets killed momentarily, I'm like, that was mm. a bit, that was a bit extreme. And much like Temple of Doom, previously smart characters are turned into bumbling idiots. So what do you want? You're saying you want horror, but you're saying this kill that they're going to do here in a little bit is too extreme. What do you, where's the middle ground there? I think the middle ground is something like Raiders. In Spielberg's case, I would say that. But honestly, this is the movie I think would have benefited, like, just outright plagiarized aliens, where you send in a team of commandos to wipe out the dinosaurs, and you bring in Malcolm as the Ripley, and they find mm-hmm. this kid on the island. Like, it could be. You change that, and it's basically the same movie. It just probably would have sucked because Spielberg's not James Cameron. I, this scene starts out okay. It, you know, they're in a confined space and it gets scary and interesting. And then 15 minutes later, I'm trying to figure out why this scene hasn't ended yet. Like, it just keeps <laughs> fucking going. The physics that it takes for this trailer to not fall over the edge make no sense. Like, gravity doesn't work this way. The scene before of the breakout was short, sweet, looked really, really good. You cut this in half, and I think it would be a much more enjoyable scene. Instead, it becomes one of the scenes that people think of, of just excess without a payoff at the end. It's great. You know what? I love playing this scene when it's a level in Uncharted. It's really cool that way when I'm involved, but it's it's a lot to watch and keep watching and keep watching. I say, having, cut- watched, having watched this in the same week as the new Mission Impossible movies... Oh, I knew you were going to fucking mm-hmm. bring this up. I mean... I knew it. We're pretty- not, we haven't reviewed that movie yet, but I'm going to say right now, this and that, they drag just as much. I don't think either see is better than the other. This is why the Uncharted movie is only freaking 97 minutes. It works better. Well, uh, I, I'd rather watch this than the new Uncharted movie, to be clear. Adam, you've called that movie out quite a few times. Can't wait till we get to that one. The only thing I kind of liked about this scene... And it was the only time I was really on edge was when Sarah falls on that window and it starts cracking. That's a great moment. It's great moments creating kind of a ticking clock as it starts to spider web. That was actually kind of cool. And I like that bit of tension. Other than that, it does drag. It's a repetitive beat though with Timmy in the truck or in the, in the tree from the first Mm -hmm. movie. Whereas we got to get out of here before the thing falls completely. Like so much of this movie feels like if you put, I don't know, Who's like a like? If you told me Ron Howard directed this movie, I would believe it. Because yeah. that, that man is Diet Spielberg. But yeah, the the I'll say the spidering of the glass and the sound. It's the only time that I think the sound is also pretty good because so much mm-hmm. of the other stuff cuts out that you can hear the the crick cracking of the glass. And it's for the first time that I feel tension. The T Rex sees its baby suffering, and Sarah says that it must be searching for its infant. You think? <laughs> no. Gee, I wonder. I wonder why. <laughs> Malcolm calls Kelly to tell her that he'll be up there when he can. This poor guy is all over the place helping everybody. They start pushing the trailer over the cliff. Sarah is stuck on the window. It shatters as Malcolm catches her with her lucky backpack. He pulls her up as fucking bongos play in the background. God, I hate this soundtrack so much. We, we've been praising John Williams so much this year. To hear this soundtrack, it just it boggles my mind that we have fucking come to this when it comes to John Williams. Eddie shows back up out of nowhere and starts rigging a rope to get them out. 
The trailer starts rolling in the mud as Eddie hooks the cable up to a car. And again, great shots being done here. I'm sure this was very hard to do. This was this probably was very time consuming. Looks pretty good. I want to know who didn't realize that this guy's like throttling it, you know, completely for a good couple minutes. Then he puts it in reverse and goes again. What was he doing the first couple minutes? I know. <laughs> He's driving backwards. It somehow places these trailers back into place as the group keeps falling while pulling themselves up. The T-Rexes return, and poor Eddie then realizes he's going to be lunch. He gets his gun stuck as they flip him in the air and tear him apart, which Matt apparently thought was too extreme. Adam, how would you feel about this? Uh, you know what? If if Rexy and Rexy want to do a little Lady in the Tramp moment, it's not bad. <laughs> you know, I kind of... <laughs> This is the night with the news. <laughs> it's, I kind of expected it, you know, it's it's fine, but either have some more gore or just have one of them chomp down on him. But he didn't deserve it, and maybe that's part of the point. But I'm glad to at least finally see someone, you know, suffer from these dinosaurs. We need more of that. Meanwhile, the trailers fall as they hang, and then they pull themselves up, and Engen is there for the full rescue. Some animal rights debates happen as here's Kelly just curled up in a blanket with no idea how she got down. <laughs> like, she just kind of appears here. <laughs> well, she did a gymnastics routine to get down from there. <laughs> and Spielberg doesn't know either. Much like the absentee father, somebody had to tell him the kid needed to come back and frame. <laughs> I thought, like, I, I hadn't seen this movie in a while. I thought for sure we were going to see, okay, so they got out of this trailer. We're going to see Ian go rescue his daughter. No, the very next scene is... <laughs> His daughter just curled up in a blanket. She's fine. This was the one you wanted to see tear, torn apart, right, Matt? Uh, <laughs> is all the above an option? Because I hate all these people. All of them. Yeah, because even Malcolm is just here to deliver snarky remarks. Take off, nuke it from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Find where they should have taken the ending of the first one, just nuked the island. <laughs> <laughs> We're learning raptors are around and Trembo's not hearing it as he leads his team to hunt. Well, for the record, why would you start hiking at night? <laughs> like, that's the worst thing you could do in an unknown area. <laughs> they take a break as Stormare gets lost and is then attacked by compies while taking a leak, and we see blood flow in the creek nearby. This fucking scene goes on forever, because as soon as I think he's attacked, nope, he's okay, and then he's, he's getting away, and then the compies come back, and then we cut away from him, and then we come back, and finally they go and they attack him. And this is the way Ammon was killed in that first book. Yeah, it is. But also, this is the mission statement of the movie where we're going to do beats that the first movie did just longer and not as good. Because this is the Nedry scene. Mm -hmm. If you tripled the runtime, and it plays as almost absurd comedy with the amount of times he gets away from them and then they get recaught. Don't walk half a mile away to take a piss in the woods. There's a tree everywhere. I don't need to go that far. But it, it makes no sense why they finally devour him at the end so quick. As you said, three or four times he's completely covered, and then he's okay. Then he's not. Then he's okay. But because he trips over one final log, in the span of like ten seconds, the river's flowing with blood. Which means there's no way that girl survived at the beginning. No, absolutely. Yeah, That's that, a great point. That makes it even dumber by comparison. And the only way he would have that much blood is if they hit like his carotid artery or something. <laughs> the break is over, so the group starts moving on. Spielberg is once again building to the T-Rex's appearance as we're hearing it approach, as well as seeing puddles shake. And then well, it'd it be nice if he hadn't seen the T-Rex before. Yeah. 
And it appears in Kelly and Sarah's tent, sniffing around for a little bit. The Mexican hunter from earlier, he can't help himself and screams bloody murder. So the hunt is on as the T-Rex chases them away, taking them out just by stepping on them. And this whole scene of him stepping on this this guy and then the guy being on the foot for a few steps, kind of demented. <laughs> I like that part. That he's I do too. In, he's stuck between his toes for a few steps. I, oh. There is something morbidly cool about that. Absolutely. So I, I got to go on a tirade here because this the drove me insane. In the last movie, we saw a T Rex catch up with a jeep. This T Rex can't catch up to a group of like fifty people running in the woods. In the in woods, the wo- it's like a it's like a closed off encavement where they they can't spread out. I, I guess the T Rex got shot in the leg. I hate this so much. Like nobody zigzags; they just keep running in a straight line. <laughs> nobody gets nobody gets stampeded over outside of that spread one guy. Out. Separate. Of course, the one guy who just yelled bloody murder, you think people would see it and just slowly back out? Yeah. Like, okay, we're leaving. Trembo shoots the T-Rex with a tranquilizer. He has, it chases the group to a waterfall and tries hunting them with its tongue, which is something taken directly from that first book, right, Matt? Yep. Yeah. I like that I scene did, a lot. I Go did ahead, until Adam. the tongue came out, and I felt like I was back in Java's palace. <laughs> But that's directly from the book. Like, like uh, Crichton does really dwell on this a lot in that book. And it is a creepy scene in the book, for sure. Uh, and Spielberg does it well here. I like the way it chomps another group. But his blood must be made of pink lemonade because it runs in that water. <laughs> but I yeah. do like the way this comes off. This is a pretty good scene. Yeah, except for the, the, the snake thing drives me crazy. Why? Because everyone's you, – you, you have, like, five people next to him. All one of them has to do is just swat it away. <laughs> And he knows the T-Rex is right there, like, unless he's Indiana Jones, who is the only person who I could see freaking out about a snake. Uh, and again, like, the, everyone in this movie, they might as well have red shirts. The fear of snakes is a very common thing, Matt. <laughs> but you, you, you got to look at the stripes, yellow and black. He's a friend of Jack. That snake was fine. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and this guy's supposed to be a safari expert. <laughs> At this point, this film has turned into a big-budget slasher film. And if Spielberg had embraced this more than the slavery parable, I might have been able to go with it a little more. Yeah, and if Spielberg had the balls to actually kill off either a kid or one of your principal characters, this would have been enjoyable. But the fact that it's also, like, beating you over the head with a sledgehammer about its animal cruelty message Mm -hmm. makes it impossible to view as just B-movie trash because it's trying to illustrate a point. They head to a field, and we're seeing more taken out as Malcolm tells his little group to go as fast as they can. This scene, when you get the, let's call them the bad guys, walking through the tall grass, like this, I think, is a, a, no pun intended, killer slasher scene. Mm -hmm. When you see the raptors walking through the grass and you get that overhead shot of, you know, seeing them start to surround them and come in, this, I think, is a killer scene. You know why it's great? Because they stole this from aliens. This is the scene with the with the dots on the radar. Mm-hmm. Completely. Uh, Though watching the raptor jump in like he's him deciding that he was going to leap into action, I thought was a stretch too far. But th- yeah, and it's short. It's quick. It's short, and it gets the job done. Great imagery here too. Yeah, I love when they this turns into a horror movie where the black guy gets offed. They they cut to him screaming for like three seconds before the raptor jumps on him. Makes me laugh every single time. They run through the field and Nick leaves to find a good place to send a radio signal for help. He does so and the raptors attack. So I thought for sure he died in this movie. Nope. But he doesn't. I was shocked. In the midst of all this meh-ham, 
There is a nice bit of Kelly and Sarah thinking that they've dug a way out and the raptor appearing right in front of them. I thought that was pretty cool because Spielberg leaves that beat for a few beats longer than you expect. You think they're going to go under that fence, and here's the raptors right there. I thought that was actually a pretty well-done scene. If these were the raptors from the first movie, though, they would have been dead. Because it takes them forever to get through that fucking door. You know how long it takes for you to dig in order to, to slide through the bottom of that door? When we saw the Raptors were capable of opening doors in the previous movie. <laughs> yeah, it's not just the script that got dumber, the Raptors did do. Speaking of dumb. <laughs> this, is we, <laughs> this is when we see Kelly display her cut-from-the-gymnastics team routine. This is Batman Forever. Dick Grayson fucking loves this scene. <laughs> this is fucking camp. Holy I shit. cannot believe... We have this in this movie. I know they wanted to get he wanted to get her involved in this. I understand you want the kids to root for somebody in this to do something heroic. You're telling it from the kids' point of view. I get that, but fuck, this is ridiculous. This is the equivalent of if you've seen the first Resident Evil movie when Mia Yolovich does a parkour <laughs> jump and drop kicks a dog in midair. And what makes this worse is the fact that the raptor turns when she goes, "Hey, you." Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I, I, I think this is one of the five. Like, I feel about this scene the way people feel about Indiana Jones climbing in that refrigerator. Or <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this is ten times dumber. Sarah falls amongst two raptors who are fighting, and they do, in fact, escape as Nick gathers them for their escape. Trembo, though, he can't be cheered up as he exclaims his friend AJ didn't make it. And then he places his hat on and says, I think I've spent enough time in the company of death. So this character has had an arc. This character is realizing that he is monk's death and he wants to get out of it. So we have one mm-hmm. character, at least, who is trying to reform. Yep. And uh, also, Nick fucks him over by taking his tranquilizers away. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> asshole. <laughs> Especially because by this point, they're teamed up. Because we first mentioned their equipment got destroyed. It becomes the Phantom Menace where they just have to walk around until <laughs> until they hit the next plot point. They arrive in San Diego as they are getting ready to unveil John Hammond's dream come true. The but ship. Wait, du- there's a third park. <laughs> <laughs> there was always another. This is the second park, to be fair. That, other, that, that was just Site B, which was just where they could go and be in their natural habitat. And then they get to go to the park, which has now been destroyed. Yeah, because this is, this is technically Site C, and I think Spielberg left his brain in Site D. Because this movie is dumbassery with a capital D. What was it about 1997 and these ships? We had this, we had Titanic, we had Speed 2. We had Tomorrow Never Dies, which has a boat. Yes, Tomorrow Never Dies, yeah, has a runaway boat. This ship does arrive, but with a few less crew members. Was there a scene cut to explain that like there were raptors on this boat, too? No, that's the reveal. So this is the world's world's quietest (laughs) T-Rex. In a year that we're getting Voyage of the Demeter out in theaters, I want Voyage of whatever this ship is. Give me 90 minutes of watching this crew get hunted down on the ship. Oh, well, you could just watch Morbius. Oh, God, really? 
The ship, of course, does not heed the warnings to slow down as it approaches at a rapid rate and crashes on land. Spielberg has made his Godzilla picture as it starts making its way through San Diego. Now, this was an idea that Spielberg had for later sequels, but he figured this was going to be the last time he was going to be in the director's chair for Jurassic Park film, so he included it at the end of this film. Some of it is made for camp as one kid tells his parents that there's a dinosaur in the backyard drinking swimming pool water, and it's revealed to have eaten the dog as the leash and doghouse is dangling from its mouth. Spielberg loves that giant eye looking through a window. Yep. This... Transformers, the BFG, he has done this to himself over and over and over. And then when these parents start arguing, like they're getting up to help their kid, what does the mom say? Maybe if you read to your kid every once in a while, he wouldn't be this way. <laughs> I, I, I love yeah. that. I love how these kids are, or how these parents are just turning into kids until they go and they see the dog dangling from its mouth. Well, I think this is fun stuff. The first time we get an actual couple, and what do they do five seconds in? They fight and argue. It's like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> this is also my problem with the movies Spielberg was making around this time. The comedy is so misplaced. You have a literal Asian guy running from a T-Rex. Yes. Which I mm-hmm. think this was only here to beat Roland Emmerich to the punch. I feel that way, too. The couple arguing. It's like that stupid scene in Minority Report with the robots yelling at each other. Where I'm like, all right, did we just enter the Honeymooners? On the surface, you know, trying to decide, hey, you know what? We're going to bring the dinosaurs to the mainland and unleash them in San Diego, on paper, that is a great idea. And that's a hell of a show-stopping ending. The problem is, it should have stayed on paper. Why wasn't this... That paper should have been lit on fire and thrown into a fireplace. Why wasn't this the entire film? That's my question. If you're going to do this, why not make this the entire movie? Well, I know. But why not just make this the entire movie? Yeah, or you end it with that boat crashing. Like, from what I remember, was that boat crashes, we know that they come off, and I didn't remember that we had a scene in San Diego for, God, it's like the last 20, 30 minutes of this film. I can't believe how long this goes. Eh, it's only about uh, 15. I'd forgotten how much of this was here, and none of it really is any good, and that's a shame. I mean, but even the T-Rex stomping around, it it's weird. It shakes this kid's fish tank, but not the pool that he's standing next to. Mm-hmm. And the vibrations don't destroy that fish tank? Oh my and then God. the poor dog. What did that dog do? Which, I think that was also a jab at Independence Day because the dog survives all these mm-hmm. absurd things. <laughs> like, there's a few decent, you know, little moments in here in San Diego. It, it feels like it's not finished. There needed to be another year on the script. I do like when it takes out the street light and the th- all the cars are crashing. Like, I agree with you. I think there's some fun stuff here. Mm-hmm. It's just inconsistent. Sarah grabs the baby and they come up with a plan, as Malcolm says, to follow the screams. We're seeing, like I said, the T-Rex eat a stoplight and chomp on a pedestrian or two. They try to get the baby to make a sound, but the T-Rex sees them before it can. And it is now chasing the car to a warehouse. They take the infant on the ship. Ludlow follows and is then fed to the infant by the daddy. (laughs) Which, you know what? Spielberg's really framing this like a horror film. Like, Ludlow's coming down. It's shadows and everything's all dark. And and then here we we see the baby learn to eat by eating the nephew. I wish there was more of that horror in it. Because, yeah, mm-hmm. when those horror elements are there, it's done pretty well. You know, it's not great, but it's pretty well. You need to decide what kind of film you're making. Malcolm closes the cargo hold as Sarah loads up the tranquilizer and shoots it right in the face. Mm. And a What's wrong with this? <laughs> a tranquilizer that hasn't worked for 95 minutes suddenly works at the finale. <laughs> 
We're seeing news footage of the dinosaurs being taken away from the island as Malcolm, Sarah, and Kelly look on. We then see an interview with Hammond, who says they need a set of rules for the preservation of the island. And for scripts. He might as well have been wearing a preacher's outfit with the amount of sermonizing bullshit he was spewing in this interview. He says if we just trust in nature, life will find a way. We then have the final Spider-Man flying through the city shot as we're seeing dinosaurs living on the land, including some pterodactyls, as credits roll on The Lost World, Jurassic Park. Any thoughts on the ending, boys? Matt? I was happy it was over. Okay. (laughs) Adam? I couldn't help but laugh that after Rex gets shot with a tranquilizer, I felt like there was a look animated like, you bitch, as it like falls asleep. But I kind of dug that, you know, we're ending with this pterodactyl. Not the first time a Jurassic movie is going to end with this almost exact same shot because I felt that it set up dinos being unleashed. But but much like Matt, oh, God, thank God the credits are starting to roll. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give the Lost World Jurassic Park? Adam. You know, if you watch these end credits, you know who's top build for this movie? John Williams. <laughs> If you watch the end credits, literally John Williams gets the first credit in this film. And maybe that's because nobody else wanted to be top credited. You know, sequels get shit on a lot for a lot of reasons. Spielberg sequels get shit on for even better reasons. You know, for such a quote-unquote amazing filmmaker, I can't believe Spielberg made this movie. And not only that, but he made this movie get made. He demanded a sequel. He demanded a book. I mean, this is... For all intents and purposes, you can't blame somebody else for this one. You know, this isn't Indiana Jones 4. This isn't so many other things. This was his baby start to finish. And for a money project, he really is like Hammond in the first one. Just because you can doesn't mean that you should. I think there's a decent sequel to be told, but it's not this film. The actors don't want to play. The music is poor. I don't think the effects is all that great. What this is, is a sequel monster movie. And on that realm, eh, you know what? It's a sequel monster movie. I'm never going to be upset about seeing dinosaurs, even if I wish they looked better. I get a Stegosaurus, I get a Triceratops, I get a T-Rex. You got two out of my three favorite dinosaurs there with a Triceratops and a Stegosaurus. I get Julianne Moore smiling throughout this film like nothing else. But she's a cutie. Can't help it. The kid is toxic. Jeff Goldblum is showing why he can't be a lead in the film. And this thing is just, it's an utter disappointment after how great Jurassic Park is. And I think that may be the most offensive thing at all. Watch us on a big screen with a kid. You may have some enjoyment. The thing is, I'm not going to shit on the score because I think we are going to get dramatically worse. So I think there's some things to be enjoyed but this thing is still a hard watch. I'm going to land on a five, and I think I'm being very generous at that. Matt? I mean, it's a good thing this movie came out in the 90s, because I was expecting Baby Sinclair to come up to the camera and go, not the director, because I swear this was not this was not Steven Spielberg who directed this movie. If it was, it was like Men in Black, where an alien came down, took his skin, and demanded some sugar water and said, action. Because it feels like a a cheap copy. If Jurassic Park is a theme park, this is one of those makeshift traveling carnivals that you see get sprung up and the rides are really faulty and the people are all disheveled and it's just gross. For all the money that was pumped into this, and I put Spielberg as the culprit 
for this production if he indeed was the one who directed it. Because he is the reason it got made. He's the one that pressured Crichton to write this book and then proceeded to do next to nothing with adapting it. I think that's the biggest slap in the face if I was Crichton. I'd probably be a little pissed off about that. It's a movie that doesn't really know what it wants to be. And it's also, I think, one of the one of the more mean-spirited Spielberg movies, and he's not someone who I think pulls that off very well when, when he's tried. There's a lot of noise. This movie made me feel really old because I wanted it to quiet down for a little bit. There's not a lot here to recommend, and this is, you know, it's not as bad as Minority Report, but I think it's it's one of his worst movies for a reason. Not a whole lot to recommend. The dinosaurs, when they wreak havoc, it's cool, except for the instances where they flat out and insult your intelligence and it becomes Battle for Endor with her drop-kicking that Velociraptor. Don't waste your time with this movie, because honestly, I felt like mine was. This is a 3 on 10 for me. It's it's not good. Wow. 3 on 10 from Matt. 5 and a 3. You know, I want to repeat that I think Spielberg took the right approach here in saying, we're not going to go for spectacle here. We're just going to make a big-budget slasher film. However... The decision to inject a whole bunch of slavery parables and everything else in this movie really damns it. I think if Spielberg had embraced one or the other, we would have a pretty entertaining film. As it is, I'm going to be less harsh on this than I was before. A lot like the first Jurassic Park. I think there are scenes here to really, really like. But the characters... I mean, we have a dumbed-down Ian Malcolm here, who Jeff Goldblum, Adam is completely right. Jeff Goldblum in the role of a lead is not good. He tries. He really, really tries here, but I don't think he can muster up the energy needed to hold a movie like this in place. I do think the final set of minutes is entertaining in its own right, but it is scattershot and all over the place. I do think it's one of Spielberg's lesser directing efforts, uh, and I say that as a huge, massive fan of the man, but the 90s was when Spielberg was turning into a much different filmmaker. I think the decision to go with Kelly as a main character here, oof, boy, that fell by the wayside. And even Sam Neill has been on the press. He even said, you know what? I was available. They didn't call me. But Spielberg went with something different, and he brought this character back, this character that people loved from that first movie. We all said that we enjoyed Jeff Goldblum in that first movie why not give us more of him this is the reason why julianne moore is wasted there are a whole bunch of people here just who just do not belong here and i don't think anybody's heart was in it while making this movie however i want to go with a five i think there are some entertaining bits in this movie i'm like adam i I think there are times when this movie does hit that stride but man it's few far in between and some of these scenes go on way too long this is lester spielberg for sure and this is the last time that spielberg is ever going to direct a Jurassic park movie i firmly believe that he's going to still be on as a producer for the next few but no more steven spielberg pulling the strings and maybe it's for the better so five out of ten for me on the lost world jurassic park now over the years One of the three of us on this podcast, you go through and you listen to a lot of stuff we did at the old place. You listen to some of the bloopers and everything else. And Matthew Goudreau has been on record as saying Jurassic Park 3 is his favorite of the bunch. Next week, we are going to be reviewing Jurassic Park 3. Matt, to preview your thoughts, what are you expecting when we review next week's film? I'm expecting to get as much hate mail as I did for saying Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is the third best of the Indiana Jones movies. So I'm taking my punishment this year. But look, I have said for years that Jurassic Park 3 gave me what I wanted from the first two. And that's what what I wanted from the first two to its fullest potential. 
That's my pitch. And you can listen to my TED Talk next week when we talk about Jurassic Park 3. And I love how Sam Neill said he was available for The Lost World, but chose to make Event Horizon instead. Adam, as the person on this podcast who has not seen next week's movie yet, you're hearing that pitch from Goudreau. What are you expecting? It reminds me, i got to go watch Event Horizon. I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> I'll double that up within the Mouth of Madness, which I love. You, oh, can, live, you can live the rest of your life without watching Event Horizon. <laughs> you know, I've, I'm actually more intrigued that way. Uh, with Matt getting what, what he wanted out of it, because I think that these have been two completely opposite films that we've reviewed so far. So I'm intrigued. The only thing I know about that film is that I need to expect a talking raptor, and that is like the only thing I'm aware of. So we'll see. I'm interested, but still, if it wasn't for this podcast, I don't think I ever would have bothered watching it. God knows I've seen some worse movies. God knows I've seen probably, but I think I've seen the worst in this franchise once we get to the World Series. Not to preview some of that, but I, I don't see how this could be worse than some of what we get in that. So we'll, uh, it's going to be my first time. So I don't know if it's on an island. I don't know if it's on the mainland. I don't even know who's in that film. And so I got a lot to learn. And whew, at 44 years old, I didn't think I'd be watching Jurassic Park 3 for the first time. I have similar thoughts to Matt with the third film, although probably not as extreme as he has said. And I have not seen it that many times. I've probably seen it as many times as I've seen the film review today. And I kind of know what to expect. I remember a kid being in that one as well. Almost as annoying as the one in this one. I am looking forward to revisiting it. And I'm especially looking forward to reviewing it with you guys. Considering one of us has not seen it. So that should be an interesting review. And then after that we're going to be taking a break from the Jurassic series. And we're going to be going back to a series that we have done this year. And we'll just reveal that next week. But boys... It's been wonderful. The varied opinions that all of us have on these films. And this is the last time we'll be reviewing a Steven Spielberg movie for a while. So I'm looking forward to going on to other pastures. Until next week, when we review Jurassic Park 3. Now it's only a matter of time before this podcast is found and pillaged. Thanks, boys. Yeah, don't you see the danger... John, inherent uh, in what you're doing here. Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. See? Not so bad. Join us next week for an entirely new review. We need more. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a look at some of our other retrospectives where we delve film by film into such other franchises as Star Wars, Indiana Jones, the films of the DC Universe featuring Batman and Superman, Pirates of the Caribbean, Avatar, the films of Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, and so many more. I don't believe it. You're meant to come down here and defend me against these characters, and the only one I've got on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. What are you looking for? 
it truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. This is how you make dinosaurs? No, this is how you play God. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. You recording this thing? Edited by Garrett. Surprise! What people can do when they when they have to. Voiceovers by Adam. Where's the wreck? Is it still behind us? The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. So Malcolm gets on the subway in all black and sits down, only to be recognized by a passenger on the train who says he believed him and then makes dinosaur noises as the other passengers take a glance as well. (laughs) I made that the stinger, by the way, the blooper stinger. (laughs) I can respect that. If this movie was made a couple years later, it would have been in real time. It would have been 10 years older, and the younger boy at least would have been tagging along. Matt, anything to say about that? Or no? Proceed. I feel like this movie's going to be a court case where it's like, give your opinion and uh, move on. Move it along, counselor. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that this movie does not waste time with getting to the dinosaurs, which I feel like nowadays they would have where you'd have, like, 45 minutes of setup before they actually get to the island. You know, this one and the first one have that in common. It would have been, for the record, it would have been Peter Jackson's King Kong, where they spend two hours on that fucking boat. <laughs> I love that movie. Oh, God. I do. I like, I do. I like parts of that movie, but mm. it, it, the fact that that was three and a half goddamn hours. <laughs> we're going to do that retrospective someday, and we're going to have a fight about that one. Yeah, that movie's going to be a three-parter itself. Yeah, I'm pretty sure a Pteranodon could land on Adrian Brody's nose, no problem. <laughs> Who her character was supposed to be, and all of her knowledge and real world, ex- real, real, real world. <laughs> I don't know what everything in this movie feels really muted, as far as the photography.
sorry, the cat got on the desk. <laughs> Can you say the muted line one more time, Matt, so that the, there's nothing interrupted with spilled makeup bottles? Say that one more time, please. Yeah, th- this movie, the photography in itself, to describe in a word, I call it muted. <laughs> and Nick says that Hammond did send a backup plan as he loads up his gun and says, Me! <laughs> One of the worst lines God, of 1997 that, is this line that here. That landed with a thud that even <laughs> an elephant would not be able to have heard the thud that that line landed with. Vince Vaughn, you are no Bruce Willis, sir. <laughs> well, at this point, I don't even think Bruce Willis was Bruce Willis. He was two years removed from Die Hard 3. He was still pretty bankrupt. Oh, God. We're going to fight on I'm, that one. I, I'm previewing the, the fight that we're going to have next year. Oh, I, I love that one. All right. We'll save it. <laughs> yeah, I love when they this turns into a horror movie where the black guy gets offed. They, they cut to him screaming for like three seconds before the raptor jumps on him. Makes me laugh every single time. Jen had good money on the fact that LL Cool J was going to die in Deep Blue Sea when we watched it last night. And it shocked the hell out of her when he lived. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> Just talking about the black guy dying in these films. <laughs> and whew, at 44 years old, I didn't think I'd be watching Jurassic Park 3 for the first time. So what are you saying? Tampa and Atlanta in the World Series? Oh, the Jurassic <laughs> World Series. <laughs> and by the way, I love the fact that you bought the three-pack, yet this is the first time you've watched the third, and you've only seen the first, one, the second one once. <laughs> hey, I have the Godfather box set, but I've only seen the first one. I stopped after one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll get to that someday. I know Matt has been uh, rubbing his hands together trying to fit that series in as well. <laughs> 